0: The Hamas terrorist threat is now in Europe. The lead starts right now. Terrorist attacks foiled as Germany and the Netherlands say they have arrested members of Hamas who are tied to an alleged plot to attack Jewish institutions in Europe. Plus, an exclusive CNN investigation into the nation's largest credit union, Navy Federal, revealing an alarming disparity between white and black applicants approved for home loans and those denied. it's now in the hands of the jury. Deliberations underway in the defamation case against Rudy Giuliani as Georgia election workers Shea Moss and Ruby Friedman seek $48 million in damages for Rudy's lives. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We got a lot of news for you today, but we're going to start with breaking news on our money lead and the Dow closing moment to go at a record high for the second day in a row. Let's get straight to CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz. And Vanessa, what's driving this surge and what might it mean for Americans' wallets?
1: Another day, another record, the Dow closing up 158 points, beating the record it just set yesterday. And yesterday's record was because the Fed announced that it was holding rates steady and it was projecting three additional rate cuts next year. And this is important because today on Wall Street, we also saw better than expected retail sales boosting the Dow and mortgage rates dropping below 7 percent for the first time since August. This is obviously good news for anyone who has money in the markets, who has a 401k, but also for the millions of Americans who don't because stronger than expected retail sales shows the strength of the U.S. consumer. And mortgage rates dropping below 7 percent will certainly probably pull some first-time home buyers off the sidelines, and ultimately, they might be able to afford their first-time home. But, Jake, you know, the fight against inflation is certainly not over. Jerome Powell said it himself. We cannot declare victory yet, but the markets today, these strong economic data points, certainly pointing in the right direction. Jake.
0: All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks so much. Turning to our world lead now, we are following major developments in the Israel-Hamas war, a war that began 69 days ago on October 7th when Hamas terrorists launched an attack on Israel and killed at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians. Hamas's desire to kill Jews is apparently not just limited to Israel. Multiple suspected members of Hamas were arrested in Europe, some accused of plotting terrorist attacks on Jewish targets there. Let's get straight to CNN's Alex Marquardt, who's on the ground for us in Tel Aviv. Alex, separate arrests span Germany, the Netherlands, and Denmark. What more can you tell us about these
2: suspected terrorists? Yeah, Jake, a lot of information from different countries. Uh, These do appear to be two sets of arrests. Uh, In Germany, they specifically mentioned Hamas, saying that they arrested four people, three in Germany itself, one in the Netherlands, and those three that they arrested, they call, according to a German prosecutor, longstanding members of Hamas, and that they were arrested on suspicion of planning attacks against Jewish institutions. And then in Denmark, they also said that they arrested four people. Again, one was in the Netherlands, uh, three were in Denmark. They did not mention Hamas. What they said these people were doing was preparing attacks of terrorism. They did, again, mention Jewish places. Here in Israel, we saw a statement of thanks from Mossad and Shin Bet, which is their equivalent of the FBI. Um, They thanked Denmark. They didn't mention the arrests in Germany, but they did say clearly that the arrests made by Denmark were, they say, uh, tied to Hamas. They say that these terrorists were acting on behalf of the Hamas terrorist organization. Uh, These arrests thwarted an attack, the goal of which was to kill innocent civilians on European soil. So both the Germans and the Israelis talking about Hamas wanting to carry out attacks on European soil, which Jake, would be uh, a real change in, in their, their in their, their goals because they have been focusing all of their uh, attention on Israel, now it may be expanding. And Alex, just moments ago, uh, President Biden spoke to reporters
0: as the White House is struggling to, to clarify the comments he made uh, to supporters behind closed doors about how Israel has handled uh, the war. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, big questions about what the U.S. wants to do, wants Israel to do in this war, um, how much longer they want to go on. President Biden saying just moments ago that he just wants Israel to be a lot more careful when it comes to civilians, but that he does not want them to stop going after Hamas. But at the same time, Jake, we saw Jake Sullivan, the the National Security Advisor here in Israel today. Uh, We are told that he talked to these top Israeli officials about the timeline, saying that he wanted Israel uh, to essentially shift this war from a high-intensity phase into a low intensity phase in uh, the near future. We're told that the near future is the coming weeks. We have previously reported that this transition is expected in the next few weeks, um, that, that the, a lower intensity phase would look like more targeted uh, attempts to take out uh, top Hamas leaders, counterterrorism raids, uh, that kind of thing. So the U.S. certainly exerting pressure, uh, but being very careful to say, hey, we're not telling you what to do. But as John Kirby at the White House said today, certainly uh, we want this war to be over as soon as possible. Major question is whether uh, that will be heated by Israel. We heard uh, Netanyahu after his meeting with Jake Sullivan uh, earlier today saying uh, that they will that they are more determined in uh, than ever and they will keep fighting until absolute victory. And then the defense minister also talking about how this war is expected to go on for more than just a few more months. so, the, the, the two countries may be significantly at odds about the timeline for this war. Jake? All right, Alex Marquardt,
0: in Tel Aviv for us, thank you so much. Nearly half of all the munitions dropped on Gaza since the start of the war have been unguided so-called dumb bombs. That's according to a new U.S. intelligence assessment obtained exclusively by CNN. Dumb, or unguided bombs, as opposed to more precision munitions. Uh, typically pose a greater threat to civilians. An Israeli military official told members of Congress two weeks ago that these bombs, gun bombs, are, are needed in order to destroy the Hamas tunnels under Gaza. When asked for official comment, an Israeli a military spokesman told CNN today, quote, we do not address the types of munitions used. CNN's Katie Bo Lillis and anchor and chief national security analyst Jim Shudo are, are with us now. Uh, and Katie Bo, how do these munitions work and, and why are they so controversial?
3: Yeah, so Jake, the the concern here is that so-called dumb bombs are less precise than than precision-guided munitions, and as a result, they pose a greater threat to civilians on the ground. And this, of course, is of particular concern in a densely populated area like Gaza, where the difference in between life and death can be a matter of a few feet, right? And this is part of the reason why you have seen the U.S. military deliberately phase out the use of unguided munitions over the past decade. Now, there are ways, is that you can make unguided munitions more precise uh, through the application of a of a guidance, essentially a guidance package that you can sort of build onto um, these existing munitions. But it's not clear at this point whether or not. Uh, Israel, how many of these sort of uh, guidance kits Israel has, whether or not they're using them, and I think maybe most critically what their rules of engagement are, right? What they consider to be the acceptable threshold for potential civilian loss of life uh, in any given strike.
0: Right. Israel insists they have not changed the rules of engagement. There are a lot of people that in the military who think that they probably have after October 7th. Jim, is Israel's use of dumb bombs in Gaza new? And how does Israel's use of these bombs compare to how the U.S. military has used these types of uh, bombs in, in past wars?
4: It's, it's not new, and, and the U.S. uses dumb bombs less. If you look, for instance, a, a comparable assault, the U.S. assault on Mosul against ISIS a number of years ago, most of the munitions used there were precision-guided weapons. There were, there were still certainly thousands of civilian casualties, but fewer than we've seen in Gaza. Th- this appears to be largely a math problem for Israel in that they don't have as many Guided weapons as they might want to use here, so they are resorting to the use of dumb bombs. And to Katie's point, it's not clear how many of them they've equipped with what are known as JDAMs. Uh, this is this guidance package you were talking about, turns a dumb bomb smart, as it were. The U.S. provided Israel some 3,000 of them since October 7th, but they've dropped 29,000 bombs. They just don't have, it seems enough of those kits to do it. Also, there's another issue here. With many smart bombs, you need teams on the ground to laze that target in, uh, shine a laser, in effect, at the target. And Israel, while it has forces on the ground, certainly doesn't have them in great numbers, particularly in the southern part of the country. So they may have just, it seems, to your point about rules of engagement, made a decision that they're comfortable using fewer precision-guided weapons. And they also say that's how they get the tunnels,
0: they have to get Hamas members Mm -hmm. in the tunnels, which are underneath uh, the apartments and, right. the, and everything else. We also saw today four suspected members mm-hmm. of Hamas arrested in Germany and the Netherlands um, under suspicion of having planned attacks on Jewish targets. How have uh, Hamas's operations outside of Gaza shifted since the war started?
4: This is a major question as to whether Hamas is making a decision here to carry out operations and direct those operations outside of Israel. We have not seen that to date in numbers. There have been Hamas operatives. There are even some here in the US primarily focused. Chris Ray uh, testified to this number of weeks ago on fundraising. To, to make an operational change, in which case they're attempting to carry out directed attacks in Europe or potentially in the U.S. homeland. That would be a change. In these arrests here, the authorities are saying uh, that they were looking at an underground weapons cache in Europe, which would, seem, which would presume that they were preparing for something. It's not clear if this was a plan underway, if it was credible, if it was imminent. But I'll tell you this. I, I know that authorities in Europe and the U.S. are watching not just for directed attacks, Ones where a Hamas official calls them up and says, carry it out in such a way, but for inspired attacks, Mm -hmm. which are, frankly, harder to track. I mean, these are lone wolves inspired by events there. They make their own plan. And we've seen that with ISIS, not just in Europe, but here in the U.S.
0: All right, Kenny Bolos and Jim Shiddo, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Just 32 days until the Republican caucuses in Iowa. What voters in that state say about candidates now versus their feelings on the candidates earlier in the year? CNN's John King is revisiting conversations, his All Over the Map series next. Turning to our 2024 lead. Cue the music, please. We're just one month and one day away from the Iowa caucuses. Republican voters have their first chance to throw their support behind their favorite candidate in that state. Donald Trump rallied in the Hawkeye state last night. I think it was his 15th visit to Iowa since uh, this cycle began. He urged his supporters to show up to caucus on January 15th, not take his substantial leads in the polls for granted. But, Mr. Trump as is his want, also took a chance to go after two of his main competitors.
5: De doesn't even like farmers. He doesn't like farmers. I said, that's not good. He he doesn't want to get that word out. And I keep hearing about the surge from Haley, Sir, I'll never vote against you. I'll never run against you. You've been a great president, sir. I'll never do this. This goes on for a year and a half. Then I hear she's having a news cover. I've decided to run the whole thing. What's with these politicians, right? De Sanctimonious has been saying for the past six months, wait for the bounce. You know, he's waiting for the bounce. The bounce is going that way. It's going the wrong direction.
0: Donald Trump is correct when he talks about, at least as of yet, a lack of surging for either Ambassador Haley or Governor DeSantis, at least according to the latest Des Moines Register poll in Iowa, which shows... Trump at 51 percent. DeSantis at 19 percent. Haley at 16 percent. DeSantis is up three points from the paper's October poll. Haley has stayed flat. She is focusing more on New Hampshire. So where does that leave voters who might like Trump's policies but are looking at other candidates who might bring a little less drama, a little less baggage to the table? Well, CNN's John King went to Iowa to find out. He joins me now. John, you followed up with voters that you met
6: earlier this year to see if they've changed their minds at all about this race. What'd they say? We started this five months ago, Jake, and we've been in touch with this group. Important to note, it's anecdotal reporting, right? You saw the polling right there. There is no question from our reporting, though. Trump's support is very solid, even growing a bit, maybe. His supporters are bullish. We do have among our voters some movement toward Nikki Haley. The big question, though, is, is it enough? And as you noted, 32 days. Do they have enough time? Trump's support is deep here, especially in rural counties like Ringgold. But if there is to be an Iowa surprise... Republican women will power it. (laughs) This is Priscilla Forsyth making Christmas crafts with friends in Sioux City. Five months ago, when we first spoke, she was leading Vivek Ramaswamy.
3: I really got the feeling he's brilliant, he's got energy, he's young.
6: Now, she urges friends to vote Haley.
3: Usually, to me, the debates don't make a big difference, but they kind of did this time.
6: Forsyth caucused for Trump when he won Sioux City back in 2016. Now, she sees something else taking shape.
3: I think they're underestimating the people who don't want the chaos anymore.
6: There's a lot of that in the Des Moines suburbs.
1: We want to turn a chapter. We want to, we want to go to something new.
6: Betsy Sarcone hopes Iowa uses its first-in-the-nation vote to elevate one strong Trump alternative. This is what she told us back in August.
1: I do find I, I am pulled towards DeSantis.
6: And this is now.
1: I am likely a Nikki Haley caucuser.
6: Sarcone says her brother and parents are also leaning Haley, but she's not final just yet.
1: If people were going to consolidate, I would go with DeSantis. Um, that's not what I'm seeing so far. These suburbs out here, you're likely going to see a lot of, it's going to be DeSantis-Haley.
6: But if it's DeSantis-Haley, Trump wins, doesn't he?
1: He does. I mean, that, that's the that's question, right? How, how do you get people to consolidate?
6: This is Chris Mudd's big change. Midwest Solar is growing and needed a new office. Same candidate, you though. Know, Same confidence.
7: You know, you've got to have thick skin to be for Trump today. And so I think those people that say they're for him are going to show up. When you hear DeSantis say,
6: you know, we've got to stop losing, or Haley say, no drama, no chaos, time
7: for a new generation of leadership, you say? There are 30, 35, 40 points behind Trump. I would say that they're the chaos and that, that they should, they should uh, stand down and support Trump. Mudd doesn't care about polls showing Haley
6: runs stronger against President Biden. Doesn't care. Trump could be both the Republican nominee and a convicted felon by summer.
7: I think Trump has been pushed into a corner. I think he's got lots of targets on him. And I think he's doing a great job of deflecting every one of them.
6: Jake, you know how this works. You talk to people on the ground who have their candidate. They think there could be a big Iowa surprise. What would define surprise? Can anyone catch him in 32 days? That seems pretty unlikely. A lot of these Haley people think that maybe, but maybe the best option, it would be a second place that had people say, wow, that's better than we thought. Momentum out of it. But I will tell you this, the Trump people say they're going to turn out. The big difference between now and 2016, the Trump organization on the ground in Iowa is full of professionals. John, the first Republican voters have not even gotten their say
0: in the caucus or primary yet, but Trump seems primarily to be taking aim at Biden um, as if he's not even really paying much attention to Nikki Haley and, and Ron DeSantis. He's really focusing on the general election as if the nomination's his.
6: He is, Jake. But make no mistake, that's also part of his nomination strategy to try to say, I'm inevitable. Why would you be for anybody else? Get on the Trump train. And one of the things we did here in Iowa is that people have reservations. You know this. Talking about Trump being divided, being on the other side of Trump can ruin relationships. It can cause arguments at work. It can cause arguments at home. And one of the things we heard in Iowa was people like, I don't want to vote for Trump, but he's going to win anyway. So I'm just either going to stay home or I'm going to vote for Trump because I don't want the grief. I don't want the fight in my life. So talking about inevitability is part of the strategy. Right now, they have the numbers to back up those speech, that, that speech, though. All
0: right, John King, thanks so much. We're going to keep this conversation going next. Why so many Republican voters are able to look beyond Trump's record and his legal problems to back him in twenty twenty four. And for President Biden, what's working, what's not, as he pushes for reelection, stay with us.
8: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature quiets their snores sleep number does that only sleep number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support your sleep number setting sleep number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better all sleep number smart beds feature cooling pressure relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot when you're cool they hold their energy to help warm you sleep better together J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: Sticking with our 2024 lead, former President Donald Trump in Iowa last night, making his final pitch to voters there ahead of the state's caucuses. Next month, the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination locking in on his main target, President Joe Biden and Bidenomics.
5: The Biden administration is running on the fumes of the great success of the Trump administration. Without us, this thing would have crashed to levels never seen before. And if we're not elected, we'll have a depression, the likes of which I don't believe anybody has ever seen, maybe 1929.
0: Let's discuss with our panel, uh, Congressman Walsh. Trump, unsurprisingly also um, in addition to that, that, sounded like a you know fairly normal uh, campaign argument. But but not surprising, he also uh, repeated his twenty twenty election lies last night, um, as he is known for straying wildly from policy talking points. But let's return to that message on the economy. That, that seem effective to you?
9: It doesn't matter what he says. Um, <laughs> it, 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 And the more you listen to him now, Jake, it just doesn't matter. His greatest legacy has always been the destruction of truth, and now all the Republicans copy him. But he's way ahead in Iowa. It doesn't matter. The Des Moines Register poll this past week and showed he's increased his lead. Uh, He can do whatever he wants right now. Pretty much.
0: And yet, even with this economic hit, we should note, Karen, the Dow hit uh, a record high today, beating yesterday's record high. Yeah. Uh, mortgage rates have dropped under 7% for the first time since August. All of this should be great news for Joe Biden, but these things yeah. do not necessarily translate to prosperity in the day-to-day lives of Americans. Um, and obviously inflation has eaten out a lot of uh, sure. whatever gains have been made. Um, what's the problem there? And please don't tell me it's just a communications problem.
10: I won't, I promise. But can I say one other thing? The minute I heard that the market was had a record high yesterday, I thought to myself, Donald Trump is gonna to have to say something about that because remember he kept talking about the stock market yeah. Yeah. when he was president. Well, look, I think, I mean, we've also seen pretty strong spending around the holidays, which is another sort of sign. Again, I think there's, there is a real disconnect from the traditional economic markers that we look at and what a lot of folks are facing in their everyday lives. I And mean, that's a true fact. But I do think one of the things that the Biden campaign and the administration could be reminding people is that parts of the plan that Joe Biden was trying to put in place, lowering costs for childcare, for example, mm-hmm. which is an economic issue. The
4: prescription drugs.
10: Right, and prescription drugs. But some of the things that didn't go through because Republicans blocked it. So I, I would like to see them talk more about, here are the things we wanna do to keep more money in your pocket, right? Because when you are lowering the cost, that's the thing the president can control. He can't control interest rates. I mean, I thought it was interesting. Ron DeSantis was like, oh, we gotta get those interest rates down. I was like, well, where's where your magic wand?
0: So um, it was interesting, Joe, because yesterday uh, after work, uh, a bunch of Trump, I mean, I'm sorry, a bunch of Biden administration staffers yeah. went outside the White House and celebrated the Dow reaching a record high. I'm sorry, that's no. not <laughs> what they did. No, no, they they went outside and largely masked, held a vigil uh, calling for a ceasefire, crit- criticizing their boss for not supporting a ceasefire. Um, so, I mean, again, the calls are coming from within the House. I mean, he, he can't get he can't get credit from his own staffers. He can't even get attention from his own staffers for the record. Dow.
9: But I think it's a really cool opportunity for Biden, Jake. Assuming he stands strong with Israel, that he welcomes this dissension within his own house. It's a free country. You can protest. And as long as Biden stays with Israel, I think it it makes him look open-minded and strong.
10: You know, I think that's such an important point because having been a White House staffer where you feel like you're under such a microscope and sometimes the administration does things you don't agree with and you feel like, well, just because I'm here doesn't mean I agree with everything, but it means I agree with most of or I believe in this individual. And I hope that's part of what people take away. You can disagree even with the president that you're working for. And that doesn't mean you don't support him on and other things. Okay th- with it, and, and I think that's okay. not a bad thing. It's a
0: nice spin. <laughs> I mean, I don't. But think, I it,
10: think it's tr- well, well, I don't well, think
0: he can fire them because it's, he's right. already doing badly enough uh, with young with young voters. That I think that would be a, a huge negative. But w- the conversation I hear about this kind of thing is, um, and this is not my point of view. So don't get mad. But <laughs> the, the kind of conversation I hear is. This is disloyal. They're making him look bad. Why Why doesn't he fire them? That sort of
10: thing. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, come on. It's a free country. That's what we're fighting for. But they
0: work for the president and they are empirically making the president look bad.
10: Well, again, I actually think that it is a sign of a strong democracy that you can say, I disagree with the president on this, but I still work here and I still believe in him. On other, on other, on well, other? That, that was the thing, Jake. Most of them <laughs> yeah. had
9: their faces covered. Yeah. But I think it's also, if Biden acknowledges it, I think it's also a sign of it'll strengthen him that he's yeah. okay with this. Yeah.
10: Can I say the other thing we're seeing, you know, I that I thought was a positive, and I know the president got asked about it today. I mean, it's been, you know, what you see behind closed doors, diplomatic speak is not the same as what you can say publicly. Oh, sure. And it does seem that the administration is moving farther along to more publicly criticize Netanyahu and say... Oh, of course. Which I think that's...
0: Jake Sullivan in Israel today, pushing them publicly to obviously... So, uh,
10: you know, again, dissension is part of our democracy.
0: uh, Joe, New Hampshire Governor uh, Chris Sununu, a popular Republican in New Hampshire, endorsed uh, Nikki Haley this week. I want you to listen to what he had to say about her today in New Hampshire.
11: And when Nikki wins here on January 23rd, think about this. The entire election gets reset, right? The assumptions that the national media has told us, oh, it's a fait accompli. Trump's just going to win the nomination. No, nope. All of a sudden, the entire country goes, oh, wait a minute. Everything we've been told about this election isn't true. That's
0: the hope for the, for the Haley people. That's the hope for the Sununu people. Is it possibly true?
9: No, I I think it's way too late. I think that endorsement will help Haley more than the Iowa governor's endorsement will help DeSantis. But I still think it's just way, way too late. Yeah, you you agree?
10: I do. But look, I think for Haley, though, she can come in number two or even a close third and have a bank shot again going into South Carolina and potentially gain some momentum. I think that's gonna be more important than what happens in Iowa. And if
9: she were to surprise people and come in second in Iowa, that would really help. That's exactly
0: right. All right, Karen Finney and Joe Walsh, thanks to both of you. Coming up next, Vladimir Putin's first substantive news conference since Russia invaded Ukraine, his latest twist on the war, plus his notable comments on two Americans that the State Department says have been unfairly detained in Russia. He also talks about the chances of their release. Stay with us. A major development today in a story that the lead has followed closely for years. A U.S. Navy officer detained for more than 500 days in Japan is coming home. Lieutenant Ridge Alconis had been in a Japanese prison since October 2021. He was convicted of negligent driving and was sentenced to three years in prison. Alconis says he lost consciousness on a drive with his family from Mount Fuji when he killed two people accidentally. He offered the victims' families over $1 million in restitution as is customary in Japan. But the Alconis family claims that there have been violations of the status of forces agreement between the U.S. and Japan during the proceedings of the case, adding his sentence was a, quote, travesty of justice. The years-long effort to secure his release was led by his wife, Brittany. She even met with President Biden at the beginning of 2023 to urge him to do more for her husband's release. In May of this year, she joined the lead and spoke about the toll her husband's detainment has taken on her family. Take a listen.
1: But my son asked me the other day, he said, mommy, the president, you said the president's getting daddy home, then why isn't he home yet? Um, and you know, if, if daddy suffered an emergency, why is he in jail? And those are questions I can't, I can't answer.
0: The good news for the family is Al Conus was brought back to the United States under an international prisoner convention. He is now in US custody, a Justice Department official told me just a few minutes ago that this process could take a few months as the U.S. Parole Commission compares his prison sentence in Japan to how the U.S. might have handled this tragic incident. Once they determine Alconus's sentence, he might even end up in home custody. We do not know. Though he is not back with his family quite yet, he is headed for American soil, and the Alconis family says they are optimistic he will be home for the holidays. We will continue to keep you appraised of that story. Also in our world lead for the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke out at his end-of-year end press conference. And apparently, Mr. Putin had quite a lot to say about Russia's war in Ukraine, Israel's with, war with Hamas, and Mr. Putin even confirmed that discussions are ongoing with the U.S. about the fate of two Americans that the State Department says have been detained unfairly, Evan Gershkovich and former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan. The Kremlin says that more than two million questions were submitted for Putin's marathon news conference that was combined this year with a call-in show. CNN's Matthew Chance brings us this report
12: from Moscow. This was Putin's first big news conference since his invasion of Ukraine nearly two years ago. For hours, the Kremlin leader answered carefully picked questions, restating Russian objectives in what he calls his special military operation. There will be peace
13: when we achieve our goals. They haven't changed. This is the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine and its neutral status.
12: For the first time, Putin revealed more than 600,000 troops are currently in the conflict zone. But he gave no indication of losses, which US intelligence estimates are extremely high. The Russian leader did, however, indicate he believed Western resolve on Ukraine may be crumbling, significant as American aid for Ukraine is held up in the U.S. Congress.
14: Today,
13: Ukraine produces almost nothing. They are trying to preserve something, but they produce almost nothing. They get everything, excuse the bad manners, for free. But this freebie may end someday, and apparently it is ending.
12: One Russian reporter asked Putin about recent Ukrainian gains across the Dnipro River. They're just small areas, Putin said, in which Ukrainian forces are now highly exposed.
13: I don't know why they are doing it. They are pushing their people to get killed. It's a one-way trip for Ukrainian forces. The reason for this are political, because Ukrainian leaders are begging foreign countries for aid.
12: This was a highly staged event with carefully vetted questions. But a live stream of public texts threw up a few surprising challenges. How many yachts does Putin have? Asked one anonymous message. Why is your reality different to our reality? Asked another.
10: A glimpse behind the curtain,
12: perhaps, into what some Russians are really thinking. In a bizarre moment, a Russian child appeared in a video message asking if her family would ever be replaced by robots. Moderator then played an extraordinary video of what she said was a deep fake image of Putin asking the real Russian leader if he had many doubles. You're the first, Putin responded. But of course, there are rumors he has many. Yeah. Meanwhile, as Putin held court, U.S. journalist Evan Gershkovich actually appeared in one. Another appeal against his detention for alleged espionage denied. Though Putin indicated talks to return detained Americans are ongoing. It's
13: not that we refuse their return. We do not refuse. We want to negotiate, and the agreements must be mutually
12: acceptable and satisfactory to both sides. What Russia wants, though, remains unclear. Well, tonight, Jake, the State Department says it would welcome negotiating with Russia in good faith to bring uh, Americans held in Russia uh, back home. We're talking about Evan Gershkovich and, of course, Paul Whelan as well. But the signs aren't particularly good because one US official noting that so far, Russia has rejected every US proposal to bring those Americans home.
0: Yeah, it's time to bring Evan and Paul home. Matthew Chance in Moscow, thanks so much. Coming up, a CNN analysis into the nation's largest credit union, Navy Federal. More than half of black applicants denied for conventional home loans last year. Why, experts say this is part of a larger problem. Plus, a live look at the D.C. courthouse where a jury is inside deliberating the defamation case against Rudy Giuliani. Will he have to pay tens of millions in damages to two election workers after dragging their names through the mud based on lies? We're on Verdict Watch. And back in a moment. In our Money Lead, CNN exclusive reporting shows that Navy Federal Credit Union has the widest disparity, the widest disparity in conventional mortgage approval rates between white and black borrowers of any major lender. This is the nation's largest credit union. It serves military members, defense personnel, veterans, and their families. And CNN's Renee Marsh found that it rejected more than half its black conventional mortgage applicants, last year.
14: But it really is a nice neighborhood, you know.
15: Baba Tandi, a Kenyan immigrant turned Texas entrepreneur, knew this was his dream home the moment he saw it. It's in a highly sought-after school district that his son so desperately wanted to attend for its basketball program. So how many homes did you look at before you found this one and said this was it?
14: We had about six, but this was the one that we we all... Wanted, and yeah. we're all praying to get this one.
15: Otandi's first choice for his mortgage was Navy Federal Credit Union. It services military members, defense personnel, veterans, and their families, and is the largest credit union in the country.
14: I was the CEO of my company, so I had a pretty good income.
15: Your credit was in the 700s. Mm-hmm. You'd recently sold your house. Mm-hmm. You had $100,000 for the down payment, which was more than 20%.
14: Correct. I mean, more
15: CNN reviewed Otandi's financial documents. He even had a pre-approval letter from Navy Federal in hand, but just two weeks before closing.
14: They got a denial. They sent me a letter saying, we are sorry, but your application has been denied. Were you s- stunned, surprised? I mean, I was stunned. I was shocked. I was hurt.
15: The denial letter listed excessive obligations in relation to income as the reason.
14: When they denied is when we came back and said, oh, man, there's something else going on. And what did you think that something else was? Discrimination.
15: But it wasn't just a tandy, Thousands of other black applicants were also rejected. According to a CNN analysis of federal consumer protection data, last year, Navy Federal Credit Union only approved 48%. That's less than half of its black applicants for conventional home mortgages. White borrowers were approved more than 75% of the time. It's the biggest gap among the top 50 lenders. The data also shows Navy Federal was more than twice as likely to deny black mortgage applicants than white ones, even when different variables, including income, debt, property value and down payment percentage, were the same.
14: I feel validated at one point, but also I feel a bit of anger anger because it shouldn't be happening.
15: Two weeks after Navy Federal rejected him, another bank approved Atandi for a mortgage. Navy Federal Credit Union denied CNN's request for an on-camera interview. In a statement, it said it is committed to equal and equitable lending practices and that CNN's recent analysis does not account for major criteria required by any financial institution to approve a mortgage loan. That includes credit scores, which are not public. Navy Federal declined to provide additional data. We asked Navy Federal why Bob Otandi's loan was denied, but they declined to comment, citing member privacy. CNN's analysis does not prove discrimination, but it does show dramatic racial disparities in who Navy Federal rejects and approves for conventional mortgage loans. The black-white homeownership gap and the Latino-white homeownership gap today are both wider than they were in 1968 when we passed the Federal Fair Housing Act. Lisa Rice has spent decades as a fair housing advocate. She says the disparities in Navy Federal's lending data are alarming and an extreme example of a bigger problem. It's definitely a larger systemic issue. And we know that we have a long history of redlining and a long history of lending discrimination in this nation. Well, all of that that data that is sort of tainted with bias is being used to develop the credit scoring systems.
14: We got the house, thank God, and we moved on. But what about the ones who are denied? What about the ones who now don't, can't get their own dream house? It's something that's going to affect the generation all the way down to their kids.
15: Well, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which oversees consumer lending, uh, says that they do not comment on specific institutions, but they do conduct their own investigations to ensure that banks and credit unions are following fair lending practices, Jake.
0: What should people do if they think they have been discriminated against?
15: Well, you have your local housing and urban development, uh, as well as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Those are two agencies in which you should file a complaint if you feel you've been discriminated against. I've had people reach out to me since we filed this story and said, should we avoid uh, putting any demographic information on our documents? And the downside of that is that we then no longer have that data to track like we did with this story today.
0: Fascinating stuff. Renée Marsh, thank you so much. Horrible, horrible story. Coming up next, one of the most daring assignments of any journalist in the Israel Hamas war scene is Clarissa Ward and her team. The first Western media to access Southern Gaza without being escorted by the Israeli military. The overwhelming scenes she witnessed. That's coming up.
15: The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down
5: graduation events.
0: Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, $48 million. That's how much two Georgia election workers want Rudy Giuliani to pay up for smearing their good names. Jury deliberations are underway right now after Giuliani abruptly declined to take the stand in his own defense. Plus, the planned attack for a mass shooting at a synagogue back in September. Court documents obtained by CNN show the suspect was just 13 years old. And leading this hour, we're about to show you the first look from an independent journalist, not one minded by the IDF or living in fear of Hamas, of what is actually going on in Gaza right now. CNN's Clarissa Ward and her team gained access to bring the story of the horrifying reality on the ground. This, as President Joe Biden today has a new public message for the government of Israel.
9: I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives, not stop going after Hamas, but be more careful.
0: Remember that on Tuesday night, at a reception with supporters, President Joe Biden said Israel is about to lose support, quote, by the indiscriminate bombing that takes place, unquote. Indiscriminate. However much the White House tried to explain away how the word indiscriminate aligns with the White House insistence, That Israel is already doing everything it can to avoid civilian casualties, those two things do not square up. And President Biden went on to underline that point Tuesday night, saying, quote, it was pointed out to me that by Bibi that, well, you carpet bombed Germany, you dropped the atom bomb, a lot of civilians died, unquote. That sure sounds like a conversation where Biden is challenging Netanyahu on Israel killing too many Palestinian civilians, and Netanyahu reaching back to the Dresden bombings and the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings from 1945 to justify what he is ordering the IDF to do. In those same remarks, Biden insisted that the U.S. is committed to, quote, do everything in our power to hold Hamas accountable, every single thing in our power. They're animals. They're animals. They exceeded anything that any other terrorist group has done of late, unquote. Yet... There are quite obviously thousands and thousands of innocent people that the IDF is killing who are not members of Hamas. And whether you blame Hamas for embedding within the Palestinian population after the October 7th brutal terrorist attack on Israel, or you blame the IDF and Netanyahu, or both, this is the ugly and brutal reality of the slaughter of innocents that Clarissa Ward brings us now. A WARNING THAT MANY OF THE IMAGES WE ARE ABOUT TO SHOW YOU ARE DIFFICULT TO WATCH.
16: YOU DON'T HAVE TO SEARCH FOR TRAGEDY IN GAZA. IT FINDS YOU ON EVERY STREET, STREWN WITH TRASH AND STAGNANT WATER, DESOLATE AND foreboding. SO WE'VE JUST CROSSED THE BORDER INTO SOUTHERN GAZA. THIS IS THE FIRST TIME WE'VE ACTUALLY BEEN ABLE TO GET INTO GAZA since October 7th, and we are now driving to a field hospital that has been set up by the UAE. Up until now, Israel and Egypt have made access for international journalists next to impossible, and you can see why. Since October 7th, the Israeli military says it has hit Gaza with more than 22,000 strikes. That, by far, surpasses anything we've seen in modern warfare in terms of intensity and ferocity. And we really, honestly, are just getting a glimpse of it here. Despite Israel's heavy bombardment, there are people out on the streets. A crowd outside a bakery. Where else can they go? Nowhere is safe in Gaza.
17: Used to be a stadium.
16: Arriving at the Emirati Field Hospital, we meet Sorry, Dr. Abdullah al nakbi No sooner uh, does our tour begin when...
17: So our ambulance. life.
16: And this is what you hear all the time now?
17: Yes. At least 20 times a day.
16: At least 20 times a day.
17: Maybe more sometimes. Uh, I think we get used to it.
16: One thing none of the doctors here have got used to is the number of children they are treating. The UN estimates that some two thirds of those killed in this round of the conflict have been women and children. Eight year old Janan was lucky enough to survive a strike on her family home that crushed her femur but spared her immediate family. <laughs> She says she's not in pain, so that's good. Her mother, Hiba, was out when it happened. I went to the hospital to look for her, she says, and I came here and I found her here. The doctors told me what happened with her, and I made sure that she's okay. Thank God. They bombed the house in front of us and then our home, Janan tells us. I was sitting next to my grandfather, and my grandfather held me, and my uncle was fine, so he is the one who took us out. Don't cry. But Dr. Ahmed Al-Mazrawi says it is hard not to.
14: I work with old people, like uh, adults, but
16: the children something touching your heart. Touches your heart and tests your faith in humanity. As we leave Janan, Dr. Al-Nakbi comes back with the news of casualties arriving from the strike just ten minutes earlier.
17: We just got us. stable and send right now two amputated uh, young uh, males. Uh, From uh, the, just the bomb. From
16: the of we just heard, from the bomb we just heard.
17: This is my understanding. Okay. They will arrive to our...
16: A man and a 13-year-old boy are wheeled in, both missing limbs, both in a perilous state. What's your name? What's your name? The doctor asks. The notes provided by the paramedics are smeared with blood tourniquet improvised with a bandage since the field hospital opened less than two weeks ago it has been inundated with patients 130 of their 150 beds are already full so let me understand this you are now basically the only hospital around that still has some beds
17: i guess so yes or maybe i'm very sure of that because they are telling me uh, one of the hospitals with a capacity of 200, uh, they are accommodating 1,000 right now. And the next door hospital, I'm not very sure, he said like 50 to 200, has uh, maybe 400 to 500 patients. So at one occasion he called me, he said I have three patients in each bed, please take any. I said send as many as you can.
16: I mean, we've been here 15 minutes, and Uh, this is already what uh, we're seeing. This is you hear, you see. In every bed, another gut punch. Less than two years old, Amir still doesn't know that his parents and siblings were killed in the strike that disfigured him. Yesterday he saw a nurse that looked like his father, his aunt Nahaya tells us. He kept screaming, dad, dad, dad. Amir is still too young to comprehend the horror all around him. But 20-year-old Lama understands it all too well. Ten weeks ago, she was studying engineering at university helping to plan her sister's wedding. Today, she is recovering from the amputation of her right leg. Her family followed Israeli military orders and fled from the north to the south. But the house where they were seeking shelter was hit in a strike. The world isn't listening to us, she says. Nobody cares about us. We have been dying for over 60 days, dying from the bombing, and nobody did anything. Words of condemnation, delivered in a thin rasp. But does anyone hear them? Like Grozny, Aleppo, and Mariupol, Gaza will go down as one of the great horrors of modern warfare. It's getting dark. Time for us to leave. A privilege the vast majority of Gazans do not have our brief glimpse from a window onto hell is ending as a new chapter in this ugly conflict unfolds And Jake, I do think it's worth underscoring that while we were there just for a few hours and had a measure of protection that was offered by the fact that we were with the Emiratis, that they have normalized relations with Israel, it's the journalists on the ground inside Gaza who have been doing truly courageous and heroic, extraordinary work since this round of hostilities. And they have been dying in record numbers as a result of that. The, community, uh, the Committee for the Protection of Journalists, the CPJ, saying more than 60 journalists killed since October 7th, Jake.
0: Clarissa, uh, first of all, that was uh, just a remarkable report and very distressing. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, in his conversation with President Biden, he brought up all the civilians that the U.S. killed in Germany and Japan uh, during World War II. Um, it was about 80 years ago. How does the civilian death toll in Gaza compare with that by the American military during more recent wars, like Iraq and Afghanistan?
16: So we've been looking through some of the numbers and talking to independent monitoring groups like Iraq Body Count, which is run by a British researcher. According to their estimates, in the first year of the war in Iraq, to, in 2003, some 7,700 Iraqi civilians were killed by the U.S. forces. Now, if you look at this round of hostilities since October 7th, the death toll is at about 18,000 at the moment, and two thirds of those are estimated to be women and children. That's roughly 11,800 civilians killed in two and a half months. And Jake, of course, this is 20 years after the invasion of Iraq. There is more precise weaponry that is available these days. And as you were noting in your reporting earlier, CNN has found that a lot of the munitions being used, and I should add that many of these weapons are produced and supplied by the US, are so-called dumb bombs, which really are not the kind of weapons you want to be using if you are sincere in your intentions to try to protect and mitigate uh the cost of life to civilians jake
0: yeah a brigadier general in the israeli forces told congress that they have to use those to get at the hamas uh militants in the in the tunnels um be that as it may you've been a a conflict reporter for a long time now um the leaders of, of the Israeli government say that this war is necessary to get rid of Hamas, uh, which poses a threat to Israel. We all saw what they did to the Israeli people. A lot of civilians, hundreds of civilians killed, slaughtered, raped, and more on October 7th. We should note the IDF claims that they believe they've killed roughly 7,000 Hamas militants. Still, even if you don't you know, believe every number coming out of the Hamas-run Palestinian Ministry of Health, there isn't a lot of disagreement that twice as many civilians have been killed than 7,000. Do you think that there could be security implications for Israel in all these civilian casualties beyond killing off Hamas?
16: I think when you look at recent conflicts, Jake, it becomes clear that often, it sounds like a cliche, but violence begets more violence. And you are creating an atmosphere in Gaza right now where it is almost inevitable that there will be a huge amount of radicalization that will take place simply because of the ferocity of the bombardment but also the fact that the people of Gaza have nowhere to go. The people of Gaza have nowhere that is safe. The people of Gaza genuinely feel as though they have been completely abandoned by the outside world and I've seen how this played out in Syria in scenarios like this people tend to drop to their knees and turn to much more radical forces because there is that sense of impotence that there is no other way to confront this. And you even heard echoes of that in an early speech that President Biden gave where he talked about, don't make the same mistakes. He put it very gently, but the warning was there. Don't make the mistakes that we made after 9-11. We've seen this movie before, Jake, and we know how it ends. And however how many Hamas fighters may be killed uh, in this round of hostilities, you have to ask the question, how many more are being created?
0: One concern um, that we've heard from the Israeli government about sending in more aid trucks, which is obviously one of the reasons for the misery uh, that you just uh, bore witness to and, and, and showed us, um, the lack of supplies, the lack of medical supplies, water, food, etc., fuel. Um, one of the reasons why the Israelis say um, they're, they're concerned about sending in so many trucks is because they say Hamas steals supplies, uh, steals the fuel, uses it for their own attacks against Israel. Um, what do you hear from aid workers on the ground about that?
16: So we have asked uh, a number of aid workers on the ground about this, and particularly we've asked the main UN agency that works inside Gaza, UNRWA, and they have said that the aid goes straight from the Egyptian Red Crescent to the Palestinian Red Crescent to the UN uh, workers on the ground and then goes out for distribution. That is not to say, and it would be impossible for me to say categorically, that some of this aid does not end up in the hands of Hamas. But you surely have to do the calculation of 1.9 million people who are displaced, who do not have adequate food, who do not have adequate access to clean drinking water, to medical supplies. And ask yourself the moral question of whether that becomes acceptable or not, Jake.
0: Clarissa Ward uh, in the UAE right now. Uh, Thank you so much for that remarkable reporting. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, the weight that will now continue tomorrow in a D.C. courthouse that could cost Rudy Giuliani $48 million. million dollars. Does Rudy even have that kind of money anymore? Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, moments ago, uh, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani left federal court here in D.C. after jury deliberations and his defamation damages trial finished for the day. Court is set to resume tomorrow. The big question in front of the jury, how much will Rudy Giuliani have to pay the two Georgia election workers whom he falsely accused of ballot tampering in Georgia? Giuliani was already found liable of defamation by another judge earlier this year. CNN's Jessica Schneider looks now for us at the closing arguments from both sides and how we got here.
11: You heard one side, stay tuned for my testimony.
18: Rudy Giuliani promised at the start of his trial that he would take the stand to defend himself in the multi-million defamation case against him. But minutes before the final day of trial was set to start, Giuliani backed out. His lawyer telling the jury Giuliani didn't testify because we feel these women have been through enough. The lawyer for former Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, essentially saying the contrived compassion coming too late after years of threats and harassment. They say they endured because of Giuliani. He
14: didn't die. You fucking racist. You were your
18: the torrent of voicemails Freeman and Moss received after the 2020 election played in court for the jury, deciding how much to award the women. The judge has already ruled that Giuliani is liable. Now it's just a question of how much he will pay. Freeman and Moss are asking a jury for at least $48 million. Their lawyers pointed to these comments from Giuliani outside court this week to prove that Giuliani still is not remorseful.
11: Of course I don't regret it. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. Hello, everyone.
18: Giuliani first made false statements about Freeman and Moss after the 2020 election, including to a Georgia state Senate committee investigating alleged but unfounded voter fraud.
11: It's a tape earlier in the day of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman-Moss and one other gentleman. I mean, it's, outsta- it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they are engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day.
18: The mother and daughter detailed in hours of emotional testimony on the stand how these false allegations upended their lives. They received death threats, they've been forced into hiding, and they've been turned down for jobs. They also recounted the agony for the January 6th committee.
14: I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. It's affecting my life in a, in a major way, in every way. All
11: because of lies. I feel like I'm defending the rights of all Americans.
18: Giuliani has refused to back down from the lies even now, years after his rampage that the 2020 election was rigged.
11: It's enough to overturn any election. It's disgraceful what happened.
18: And Giuliani spread wildly false claims. Gee, just about the 700,000
11: votes that President Trump was ahead by two days ago that disappeared.
18: And ultimately, Rudy Giuliani might not even be able to pay whatever this jury awards. You know, for months, Giuliani has been buried by legal bills that his own lawyers have said he has no money to pay. And of course, he's not only defending against this defamation case, he faces several other civil lawsuits. And of course, Jake, he's been indicted by the Fulton County District Attorney for his alleged involvement in the fake elector scheme. So the jury deliberating for several hours today, they'll be back at it at 9 a.m. tomorrow to determine how many millions he might pay.
0: Could this trial impact any of the legal cases for Donald Trump?
18: You know, most of Donald Trump's are criminal. Of course, he's facing two in federal court. He is, though, facing a defamation lawsuit by Eugene Carroll. That's set to go to trial in January, so there could be some influence based on how many maybe millions Rudy Giuliani gets in this case. But, you know, the bigger thing here is that we are really seeing, in this case against Giuliani, how much of a human emotional toll these election lies have have with the toll that it's taken on these election workers. And that does relate to the election subversion case that's in federal court, uh, potentially trial early next year um, against Donald Trump, so we'll see.
0: Jessica Snyder, thank you so much. Let's continue talking about this with Ken Friedman. He was a spokesman for Giuliani's 1993 mayoral campaign and was a consulting producer for CNN's special documentary, Giuliani, What Happened to America's Mayor, which is a good question. Uh, As CNN's Jessica Schneider just outlined, Ken, Giuliani was set to testify in his trial today. It didn't seem like a very wise course of action to me. Uh, Just this morning, his lawyers announced he would not be testifying. Listen to what Giuliani said
11: about this just Monday. You heard one side. Stay tuned for my testimony. It'll be under oath.
0: What do you think happened? Why do you think he, in the end, did not testify?
7: I think think that he came to his senses and his lawyer wouldn't let him uh, get up until he agreed not to testify. All he could have done is dug himself a, a deeper hole. I mean, it's, it's clear that he defamed them. He's already been, uh, you know, that's been substantiated. And there's this question now of what the damages are. But as, you're, as uh, uh, Jessica Schneider reported, who knows if he's gonna be able to, to afford to pay those damages along with his legal fees and, and other civil um, actions.
0: And just just a reminder for our viewers, it's not just uh, Ruby and Shea that say they didn't do anything sure. improper. It is Republican election officials like Gabe Sterling and the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Mm-hmm. Trump administration sure. D- Department of Justice officials looked into it. They didn't do anything wrong at all. Period. Um, Ken, I want to play what Giuliani just one thing he said about Moss and Friedman back in 2020 before the Georgia State House, okay. and then I want to butt that up next to something that he said this week. Let's roll that tape. All
11: right. How can they say there's no fraud? Look at that woman. Look at her taking those ballots out. Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room hiding around. They look like they're they look like they're passing out dope, not just ballots. But everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to? Of course, I don't regret it. I told the truth. They they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Oh, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned.
0: Okay, to say nothing of this, just the blatant racism of saying that they were looking like they were passing around dope, which is just insane. Yeah. That last clip of Giuliani just this week defending his actions. Stay tuned. Yeah. There's going to be more proof. We've been staying tuned since November 2020. There's no proof
7: and he's still standing by it. You beat, you beat me to it. That was my punchline. Listen, he's also said that he has insurance on Trump. And we're still waiting to hear and, and see that. Um, he's defiant, as is Trump. They, they, they sing from the same hymn book. Uh, and they're contrarians. And they go down swinging, um, convincing themselves they're right. And unfortunately, a lot of people agree with them in this country. Ken, here's a very
0: simple question that I've been asking people uh, for a while now. What happened yeah. to him? What's wrong with him? Because obviously, um, look, there are a lot of people that didn't like him when he was district attorney, a lot of people who didn't like him when he was mayor. But this is just something else.
7: Well, you know, there are a lot of theories. I spent you know two years uh, reporting for the for the documentary and, and four years talking and writing about him. But listen, who knows really when it comes down to it? We've all heard different theories. Um, I believe that he was seduced.
0: I, I, I want to know yours. What's your theory? Right. This is your opinion. Okay. Your, just your opinion. What, what do you think happened to him?
7: Well, I have more than an opinion. It's educated opinion. I, you know, I've been told things and I've seen things, and I think he was seduced by Trump. You know, money being a very powerful aphrodisiac to him. He had a very expensive marriage and a more expensive divorce, and um, it created a mania in him. Uh, and, and a, 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 a desperate need to remain relevant um, and have access to the, to the presidency and to sell the office around the world and, and make, you know, millions and millions of dollars, which he apparently no longer has. So it's a combination of a combination of variables um, that contributed to his, his accelerated personality change almost um, exponentially. Different than he was when I knew him. He was always intense, always focused, and committed. But then he was very competent. He was a very effective first-term mayor. I I wouldn't. Uh, I can't see him running running uh, anything anymore, frankly. Not you know particularly yeah. not the city of New York. It's pathetic. Ken Friedman, thank you
0: so much. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Coming up next, Kevin McCarthy, former speaker, current congressman, soon to be former congressman McCarthy. McCarthy. He's down to his final hours in Congress. Ahead, his moment on today the on the House 5. floor. Plus, what McCarthy said about CNN's Manu Raju. That's after after all those years of Manu chasing him down in the hall. The Stay with us.
19: Have,
0: in our politics lead, parting words today from ousted Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on the Floor as he leaves Congress.
19: Do not be fearful if you believe your philosophy brings people more freedom. Do not be fearful that you could lose your job over it. Do it anyways. I would do it all again.
0: Ah yes, do not be fearful. Words of courage from Kevin McCarthy, the Winston Churchill of our time. Let's bring in Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, Congress is, surprise, surprise, leaving town for the holiday holiday break with a major to-do list left here in Washington.
20: Yeah, that's right. The House is gone until after the Christmas holiday and then into the new year. The Senate will come back on Monday in a last-ditch effort to try to get a deal on immigration to deal with the crisis of the southern border with Mexico. Potentially that could unlock aid to Ukraine and Israel, but many, many hurdles remain. And also ample frustration at the amount of legislation left on the desk, unable to get resolved as the House left town and members are making clear they're not happy about it.
7: On the individual members, because they've um, they're gutless and they won't stand up.
20: But when you look back at uh, this Congress, has this been a has this been a productive Congress?
7: No. It's, it, I've been here five years, and the biggest surprise everybody says, "What's your biggest surprise up here?" That I was not surprised.
20: No. What do you think of the fact you guys are leaving town without addressing Ukraine? Is that an abdication of our responsibility? I'd say
17: my greatest disappointment is that we put these extension of spying authorities onto our Defense Department authorization bill. I don't believe that should have happened. I've expressed my disappointment uh, to the Speaker and to other leaders about that, and I hope we do better in the
20: new year. And that last comment from, coming from Congressman Matt Gates, who, of course, led the ouster of Kevin McCarthy and making clear his frustration with the current speaker, Mike Johnson, over some of the deals he cut to avoid some of the issues to, connect, to add to his list if he weren't able to cut those deals. But as you can see, frustration from his hard right as well.
0: Manu, I, I want to uh, play some sound from Kevin McCarthy, not his Churchillian address uh, from the floor of the House, but something he said earlier this week on Megan McCain's podcast Uh, about who he thinks is the most fair Capitol Hill reporter. Take a listen.
19: Manu with CNN. Mm -hmm. I was frustrated with him when I was minority leader. It was always Trump. But you know what, as speaker, he was tough on me, but he was fair.
0: Okay, first of all, congratulations. You were (laughs) tough but fair.
20: Thanks.
0: (laughs) Even if he has not yet learned how to pronounce your name after 20 years. It's Manu. But um, <laughs> right. Manu, we at the lead just had to put together a little montage of some of your run-ins mm-hmm. with uh, Kevin McCarthy over the years. Take a look.
12: He said he was in pain that you hit
0: him oh, so hard Oh, come on
19: now. Why don't you ask the other question? Why don't you I want to do no, you don't. No, you. Never you changed you,
20: your position. I never changed my position. No, I was with Joe Biden on the election, and he's president of the election. Did you step aside the speaker?
19: Is that, the, is that what the White House asked you to ask? No, did I not mean, anyway. even asking. Did, you a White a White House, did the White House send you a, a memo today? I can always count on you for the most inappropriate question. He does this every time. You ask me the same question, the same time, in the same place. So I answered your question. It's nice to have you here.
0: I'll take that as a, a little parting gift, if you will, Mono. You did a great job uh, uh, covering... Covering that character, uh, we appreciate you.
20: Thanks, thanks, Jake. It was, it was an eventful few, few years, but you know, as you know, the motivation is always to get new information, which I try to do every day.
0: You're, you did a great job. Don't let his praise of you fool, fool anybody. You, 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 <laughs> did a, you did a great job. Coming up, thanks, reaction James. to the conspiracy theories pushed by GOP presidential candidates about January 6th from someone who was at the Capitol that day and was injured in the attack. Stay with us. In our politics lead with just over a month until the Iowa caucuses, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is embracing a rather bizarre campaign strategy. He's continuing to push disproven, unfactual conspiracy theories, such as, for example, that January 6th was a, quote, inside job. Watch his exchange with my friend and colleague, Abby Phillip, at a CNN town hall last night.
8: The reality is we know that there were federal law enforcement agents in that field. We don't know how many.
1: I think it's Mr. shameful. I, if, if I may finish, just well, let me this, just, is, this is I, really I'm gonna, important. I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you here because I I that there were... Establishment doesn't approve of this message. I know this, we should be able to talk about this. You're saying that there were federal this is, agents This is important in the to crowd. talk about. <laughs> this, you are saying important. there were federal agents in the crowd on, on yes. January 6th. Yep. There is no evidence that there were federal agents in the crowd on January 6th. So, so, Where is the evidence that the government had a plot... So let's do this. An inside I, job. No, 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 I'm, gonna tell you what inside to job is, I'm not going to. I'm not. Violence in respect, on January 6th. Where I'm not going to let you put words in my that.
8: mouth. I'm going to put my words in my mouth, and I'm going to tell you what what Where I mean by that. Where is the evidence Entrapment. that the government was
1: involved? Entrapment. In-
8: Why did they suppress footage of now what's been released? 200 hours of footage of shooting rubber bullets into that crowd, shooting tear gas into that crowd. You didn't see that before. You saw what the response was to that. Uh, now you see Ms. footage coming out of actually rolling out the red carpet for Capitol Mr. Police allowing people in Again. right through the front door. What the government cherry-picked 6. 12 hours of footage when there was 200 hours of footage. So cherry-picking was the government, not me. Released so. the whole thing.
0: <sighs> it's exhausting. Let's bring in former U.S. Capitol Police Sergeant Aquilino Gunnell. He was one of the many brave officers who defended the Capitol on January 6th. He's now the author of a new book. It's called American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy. Um, and we should note uh, also, uh, Sergeant Gunnell, that because of what happened that day, you had to retire because you were so wounded
21: that day. Yes, sir. Um, thanks for having me, uh, Jake. And yeah, I, I had sustained multiple injuries on that day, some of them physical, some some of them mentally, and some of them uh, the moral injury as well, just like uh, Mrs. Uh, Ramaswamy is saying, that, that, that there were federal agents uh, among the crowd. Yes, the police officers were trying to defend the, the people inside, those were the agents that perhaps he referring to.
0: When you hear this lunacy, that like the feds were, you know, that it was all entrapment. I mean, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> but, but when you hear this, as somebody who was there that day, who, who was hurt that day physically and emotionally, psychologically, what goes through your brain when you see this,
21: this character running around spreading these lies? Uh, this- it is a character, but you have to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, this is coming uh, from a person who has not done anything selflessly uh, to uh, protect anyone but himself, uh, just like the former president. I do uh, cover this, some of these uh, things, in, in my book, American right. Shield, um, uh, in terms of the type of injuries that I sustained and what I did uh, throughout the day, uh, throughout the, the, the fighting, uh, to. Protect everybody inside the capital. Uh, it wasn't just because I, I, I favor one party or the other. I was just simply doing my job I, yeah. as a uh, as somebody who was keeping his oath, uh, oath, and and, and uh, protecting everybody inside. Uh, I did a great job, uh, in my opinion. Um, yeah, and you, is what I, he we
0: should note you you write in the book at age seventy six, Trump is allowed to go after his old job, while my career was destroyed at forty two because of him.
21: Yeah. Um, He's
0: the front runner for the Republican nomination. What, what do you think about that?
21: Um, and this is coming from uh, the party that says uh, law and order matters to them. Right, blue uh, lives the, matter. The, the rule of uh, law matters to them. And yet every single time that they had the opportunity to support the police officer, like myself and my colleagues, uh, they choose otherwise to uh, support the former president. Uh, so whenever they say those things, uh, I don't believe them any, anymore in that ethos. Publicly, they, they say all these things, uh, but clo- behind closed doors, they've they shown otherwise. So there, have
0: been, there has been justice for some of the people who stormed the Capitol that day, hundreds hundreds uh, of, of sentences and plea deals and the like, um, but not everybody in the crowd who has even been identified. And Congressman uh, Barry Loudermilk said on a right-wing channel the other day, that one of the reasons why Republicans are currently going through the footage, all the remaining footage that hasn't been released, and blurring the faces is because they don't want the, the folks from, quote-unquote, sedition hunters uh, to figure out who the unidentified criminals are. What, what goes through your brain when you hear that?
21: It's amazing. Uh, again, coming from the party that, um, that claimed to be in the side of the rule of law, in the same sentence uh, last week, uh, the new speaker of the House, uh, Mike Johnson, said, we are the party of law and order. We want transparency. We want the American people to to see the transparency. And then in the same sentence, he goes, we need to blur out the faces of these people. I covered some of these things in my book, America's Uh The book is, it is not just about uh, Jerry Six. It's about my whole life uh, yeah. in terms of the sacrifices and the things I had done uh, for uh, a country, Um, the many sacrifices, um, you know, from the time I arrived here in the United States, the simulations, I had the multiple layers and things like that. Um, Kind of like the obstacles, the adversities that I that I overcome. Yeah, you emigrated
0: from the Dominican Republic when you were 12.
21: And the the absurdity that happened is that I wasn't born here in this country. And yet here I am defending the country from the same mob, native-born citizens, uh, attacking the capital, attacking our democracy. And a lot of us immigrants, along with many born citizens, were defending the capital, the police officer. So, And yet they turn around sometimes and tell us, the immigrants, that we are are the one invading the country. The last time I checked, we were defending the the capital. Uh, Many of us were not born here. Uh, and as a re, uh, result, they tell us that we were the wrong because yeah. they defend, the they normally defend the rioters. Uh, I cover these in, in, the, in the book extensively. Uh, you don't have our back if you don't support, if you don't support accountability uh, and, and demonize us for, for what we did on that day.
0: Do you ever feel like you took your oath of office or your oath to, the, to protect the Capitol? that you were inspired to do when you were a kid and you went on a visit to the Capitol. Yeah. You write about it in the book very movingly. Do you ever feel like you took your oath more seriously than
21: some of these lawmakers take theirs? Uh, of course I did. I mean, I was expecting that they would after they were themselves were the target of, of the mob. I mean, talk about the, the president at that time send a mob to kill them, and then they turn around and support him again to run for president. Meanwhile, they telling us that we are the bad guys because these are patriots, these are um, hostages, these are political prisoners. If that, those are, if there are those things, then who we are? Who are we? Yeah. Are we the captors, the sicario, no, the oppressors? You're, you're the patriots. You know, so it creates a moral injury altogether. But I'll let you guys um, read my book. Yes. Um, it, it's, it's a great uh, book about sacrifices, inspiration. Um, and, look at this picture of you. That's, and, let's get a close-up of that. The young buck me. Yeah, look at you. How old are you in this picture? Uh, 18? 21. 21 uh, years old. I joined the military uh, 21 look years at old. You. Look at this and, little baby. And I, Sergeant
0: <laughs> Gunnell's new book, *American Shield: The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy*, is out now in both English and Spanish and Espanol. Thank you so much. Best of luck. Great Christmas gift for anybody out there looking for something Feliz Navidad. Uh, coming up, Matter the alleged Christmas. mass shooting, according to court records, planned by a 13-year-old. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead, we are getting a look at court documents today that reveal how police in Canton, Ohio, managed to thwart a potential mass shooting at a synagogue back in September of this year. The suspect, just 13 years old, barely even a teenager. In those documents, police allege the teen created, quote, a detailed plan to complete a mass shooting at the Temple Israel. CNN's Bryn Gingrass joins us now live. Bryn... How did law enforcement uncover this alleged plot?
22: Yeah, Jay, Canton, Ohio law enforcement, but all the way up to the FBI, we've actually learned that this chatter was online on the social platform Discord, and it was actually counter-extremism analysts within Discord that came across it and then alerted the FBI, which then, of course, sparked an investigation. And we've learned, actually, from the Stark County, Ohio uh, Sheriff's Department, that when the FBI went to visit this 13-year-old, they discussed their findings, which included a map and detailed plans of wanting to burn and shoot up a local synagogue there in Canton, Ohio. And get this also, at just 13 years old, this person also told police that he was part of multiple anti-Semitic and political groups on Discord. Now, this certainly sparked what was called a significant public alarm. The synagogue, of course, had to be notified, as well as the student's school district. And as a result, this teen was arrested and charged with two misdemeanors, Uh, inducing panic and disorderly conduct, Jake.
0: What happens next to this 13-year-old?
22: Yeah, so this is going to continue on through juvenile court. Now, it's important to keep in mind this happened in September prior to the October 7th attack. Uh, However, we know, of course, there's been anti-Semitic incidents on the rise before and now surging after uh, this war broke out. Uh, And certainly not only anti-Semitic, but also incidents targeting Muslims and Arabs. But for this particular incident, the ADL did respond, and I want to get to it. It says, for young people like this suspect, we hope this can be a teachable moment. Hate and threats on social media as in real life, cannot and will not be tolerated. And for this particular incident, this teen is going to go before a judge next week for trial. So it'll be that judge who makes a decision on his penalty. Jacob. All
0: right, Bryn Jenkins, shocking story. Thanks so much. Yeah. Coming up, new reporting from CNN's Clarissa Ward after her courageous visit to southern Gaza, the first Western media journalist to do so without the escort of the Israeli military or fear of Hamas. More of what she saw as strikes hit while she was there. That's next in the Situation Room.